0: Kevin Sully is right now, but I am so glad that you're not here because I have the distinct honor and pleasure to introduce and be joined by St. Marshall, who is one of the most dynamic and exceptional leaders in our history. St. Marshall traveled from the dim horizons of Richmond, California to Berkeley University, where she became the first African-American cheerleader in the university. Former cheerleader. I love that stat. To spending over 40 years with a successful career breaking barriers at AT AT&T because she was putting people first. And now she has been named as the CEO of the Dallas Mavericks, achieving another milestone of first as the first African-American CEO in NBA history and one of the most impactful leaders in our business and in our community. I think the mic drops every single time you get on stage. So welcome. Welcome to Mic Drop, Ms. St. Marshall. Good morning, sister. How are you? Listen, how do I get an opportunity to fill in for Sully when you are on that Mic Drop? Monica,
1: because thank you. Because we were meant to be together and we know that. We, we figured that out a couple, a few years ago. <laughs> yes, we
0: did. <laughs> so good to see you. You well,
1: too. oh my goodness.
0: And and again, you know, I I am uh super excited because when I look at you, you are the epitome of a leader, right? Not just in our community, but you notice I used the word history. And you've had a successful career, of course, within AT&T in corporate America, but now you're in sports. And I'm sure people ask you this question all the time, my friend. What is the difference, right, in your transition to corporate America, non-sports, to now working in the sports industry?
1: Yes, you know, I do get that question a lot. And the difference really is the subject matter, uh, because, you know, leadership is leadership. And when you have a a group of people to lead and uh, you're responsible for profit and loss and you have customers to take care of, you know, that's kind of all the same. But the subject matter is different. So in in this job, I have the pleasure of learning the business of basketball, and I am learning it every single day, and it is so much fun. Uh, but that's that's really the big difference. Is I didn't I didn't know anything about uh, the business uh, of sports, and so I'm learning it every single day.
0: But leadership is universal. I love that. Yes, it is. And so to it that is. point, talk to us about the fact that you know other businesses, of course, are trying to ignite their power and bring people together. How can we use sports as an example for other businesses to bring people together and truly unite towards one mission?
1: You know what I love is that, uh, and we we experienced this a lot uh, in 2020 during the pandemic and then in the aftermath of the George Floyd uh, uh, killing. Uh, We are, as a sports team, we are natural unifiers. I mean, we convene people for a living. That's what we do. Uh, Our job, uh, at least for home games, is to have 41 41 parties. Okay, We have 82 games, 41 at home. So we have 41 parties where we convene 19,200 people. That is just what we are built to do. That's what we love to do. We're excited about it. That's our mission is to bring folks together. And so every now and then something pops up where we get to kind of take that mission and what we naturally do Mm -hmm. and use it for a different cause. And people expect us to do that. We want to do it. So many people trust us. I mean, not just the people in the arena, but people who watch, uh, who watch us uh, in the various ways that they, you know, they can tune in. And so people are trusting us all the time. And so sometimes we get to get, we get to, you know, unite people and give that trust back on the things that actually matter to them. So we're naturally built to do it. We're wired to do it. We love doing it. Um, when we had our courageous conversation, our theme uh, was listen, learn, unite. And it's unite around whatever the need is. So we love to do it. That's who we are.
0: Sin, I love that. You, you talk about trust. So that sounds like the secret ingredient for any company to ignite power. And I love how unapologetic you are in the fact of talking about, you know, Mark chose me to ignite change, to be an, a change agent within the Mavs. Talk to us about some of the key ingredients of being a change agent and how you inject change into a company.
1: I, I think, first of all, what I had to do is research. Of course, when, when Mark called me, I didn't know exactly what was going on, so I had to do my research before I met with him uh, just to really understand kind of what the mission uh, was all about. A- and then I had to talk to people. I had to do a lot of um data gathering, fact-finding, and just really trying to understand, you know, who these people are, what do they want? Uh, you know, they come to work every day, but what do they really want uh, out of this place? What do they want uh, out of this job? Is it a job? Is it a career? Who are these people? Then, of course, I had to do my research on the fans. I mean, just so just a lot of fact finding. And then based on that, I had to do it fairly quickly, uh, laid out a vision of uh, who we wanted to be, and then uh, laid out a set of values, and our values spell crafts. Uh, character, respect, authenticity, fairness, teamwork mm. and safety, both awesome. physical and emotional safety, um, and then laid out a 100-day plan, met with every single employee in the organization because that is key, to meet with your people. Sometimes the organizations are too large. Like when I was at AT&T, I couldn't meet with 10, 20, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 people. Uh, but we had, you know, at that time, about 120 people, and I met with them one-on-one uh, to really get to know them. Uh, you know, just really spend time with them. And and that was the recipe, vision, values, one-on-ones, and then uh, creating a diverse leadership team and a diverse workforce so that we could really meet the needs of our fans, our suppliers, uh, and the people who trust us every single day. And of course, uh, make it a great place to work. You'll love this. Our, our workplace promise is every voice matters and everybody belongs. Uh. So if you work at the Dallas Mavericks, if you play for the Dallas Mavericks, if you do business with the Dallas Mavericks, we can promise that your voice matters and you really do belong.
0: That is so huge. You have a voice, and we are listening. I love
2: that, Monica. No, and yeah, I'm. It matters I'm, to us. We we, mm-hmm. we can we can feel Monica, the change. Is that Monica Paul? How yeah. you doing, Set? <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> so glad you're with us and so glad you're with the maps. And uh, I can tell you that uh, from a community standpoint, we can feel your change. So uh, I, I see that sign behind you that says thank you. And you were thanking some other workers. Well, I think we're telling you thank you for all that you've done. <laughs> thank
1: you. It's so good to see you. It's been a minute. I know <laughs> it has.
2: Uh, uh, so, so you recently said on a panel at the President uh, Bush Presidential Center that you are your ancestors' wildest dreams. I have to know, what did you mean by that?
1: Oh, when I think about my ancestors, I think about, you know, just what all they went through uh, to get me to this point. So I stand on some shoulders and and what I meant by that is, you know, they had dreams, Uh, you know, way back in the day when, you know, we were in a separate uh, quote unquote, separate, but equal. uh, And we were in a segregated uh, country uh, when, you know, uh, a black man wasn't even considered to be a full man. Uh, they had dreams. Uh, they worked hard. They bled. Some died uh, so that one day uh, I could actually sit in the seat that I'm in now. So they had dreams that uh, one day we'd live in a country where everybody really was equal. We'd live in a country where zip code didn't matter, that I could get the same education as, uh, as others uh, received. Uh, that I could get the same opportunities. So they had big dreams about how we would live and how we would be respected uh, as a people. And I am living out that dream. And yes, they had some will, some wild dreams that they bled and died for. And I am truly their wildest dream. Look where I sit right now. I mean, like I'm on this podcast <laughs> with my two buddies. I mean, this is crazy. I mean, this is crazy. But they right. they uh, had a dream about this.
3: And I, I, I'm, I'm living it. Now we are honored to welcome Dallas's own Tim Brown to the mic drop. Of course, Woodrow Wilson High School class of 1984 when the Heisman at Notre Dame first wide receiver to do so prolific receiver kick and punt returner for 17 years in the NFL 16 with the Raiders inducted into the college in football, uh, the pro football halls of fame. Not to mention the Woodrow Sports Hall of Fame, by the way, (laughs) along with the the late Davy O'Brien, who won the Heisman in 1938, which of course makes Woodrow the only public school in America to produce two Heisman Trophy winners. Tim is one of only 10 players to win the Heisman and be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Fewer, Fewer men have gone from the Heisman to the Hall than have walked on the moon. So this is a special thing and a special episode for us to be able to welcome Tim Brown. Uh, to the mic drop thanks for joining us Tim
4: hey thank you guys appreciate it
3: we're going to get into the Notre Dame coaching change (laughs) here in a in a minute a little bit of a bombshell earlier this week Uh, but I want to start with a question about your role as the executive producer uh, of a documentary called the perfect 10 recently brought seven of the 10 members of the club who went from the Heisman to the pro football hall of fame uh, seven came to Dallas for a film shoot in a uh, warehouse in Deep Ellum. Of course, two members of the club, Doke Walker and Paul Horning, uh, another Notre Dame alum, uh, are no longer with us. Of course, O.J. Simpson on the list, but not uh, participating. So let's hit the other names, Tim. These are the other six people that you were with as you began work on this documentary. Charles Woodson, Barry Sanders, Marcus Allen, and then... Four, three, in addition to you with local connections, Tony Dorsett, Earl Campbell, and Roger Staubach. Uh, First of all, how how did you get the idea to bring this group together for a documentary?
4: Well, when when I was uh, told about this, literally, I was on my way to give my um, uh, Hall of Fame induction speech when uh, a friend who came up from Dallas came up to me in the hotel and uh, and said, hey, did you know that you are only the ninth player to win the Heisman and uh, be inducted into the Hall of Fame? And I just sort of shooed him off. I was like, man, Lee, I mean, there's probably been 30, 35 guys. You know, you just – he just sort of chuckled and said, no, no, no. <laughs> and um, so when I got on the bus, I literally Googled it up. And uh, and at that time, Google hadn't added me, so there was only eight guys, and I was, I was really shocked. And, um, you know, the more we thought about that uh, as the weeks went on, you know, we thought about, you know, how can we help how, you know, we've, we've, we've left an incredible legacy on the football field. Um, how can we, um, uh, how can we, you know, leave an incredible legacy off the football field? So with that, we just started, you know, talking and, and trying to come up with ideas, man, and, um, um and and then this guy named blue mark Bluestein, came came uh, came around and said hey look i love what you guys are trying to do with this nonprofit and raise money and all that stuff but you guys may have a brand this could be a brand i mean this could be something that companies want to you know bring you guys in to for speaking engagements or whatever and and with that you know we we started thinking about um you know hey maybe we should put a documentary together things of that nature so and that's how it all sort of came about. And I'm saying this in two minutes, and but it took all that took about four or five years uh to happen. And um so we're we're in a great place now. The documentary went well. We're in the stage now of shooting the individual shots. Uh most of us are done. I think only two more guys need to finish their shots. And uh hopefully, you know, this thing will roll out in at the Hall of Fame next year and and um it'll be everything that we want we asked it that we we want it to be.
3: What was it like, you know, producer Steve Trout from NFL Films called it the coolest clubhouse in the world, being there with you seven uh, uh, in, in that Deep and Warehouse on that shoot. Uh, what was it, What was that like just to, to be gathered in person?
4: Well, you know, for me, I, I still fanboy around Tony Dorsett and, and Roger Staubach, you know, growing up here in Dallas, man, and Marcus Allen and I have such a relationship uh because you know I tell people he literally taught me how to play the game at the NFL level um and you know of course Barry Sanders and I could you know we're you know neck and neck with when it came to uh, uh all purpose yardage and things, things things like that in college so I have a relationship with all these guys uh you know so not that I was a focal point because they set me in the middle but but certainly you know being able to reach out to Roger and 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 knowing part of his story but hearing you know stuff that we obviously didn't know about uh, it, it was it was really you know I won't say it's surreal and all that stuff because these are real guys who have real lives but uh, we've never sat down before in any circumstances um, and, and talked about our lives and you know just having that opportunity was was pretty big.
3: Now, Roger Staubach, of course, is the only quarterback in the club. Now, Jim Plunkett, who won the Heisman in 1970, may still get in to the mm-hmm. pro football hall. But why do you think, uh, of the nine, only one is a quarterback? Anything Anything to that? Yeah, I mean, there's a
4: lot to it. You know, I think, um, you know, when I started knowing about the Heisman late in high school, which would have been, you know, 83, 84, um, you take that uh, up until really – Cam Newton, if you were a quarterback and you won the Heisman, you had to adapt to that NFL system that, um, that you were drafted into. And not till Cam Newton came around when the Carolina Panthers just said, hey, look, whatever this guy did in college is what we're going to do in the NFL. And they sort of changed that position where now you have Lamar Jackson who's doing whatever he wants to do when it comes to um you know plan plan that offensive s- scheme that they have in baltimore um and and so these guys are having more success than than the guys in the in the eighties and nineties because those guys had to adapt to an n f l system and maybe that's not what they were running you know in college so um you know so i, I think you know for Roger to be able to do what he did uh and his story is. You know, incredible going to the Navy and doing all that stuff and, you know, playing, coming back. I think he was a 27 year old rookie or whatever. So it's really an amazing story that he was able to put together such a great career uh, in really a short period of time.
2: So, Tim, during with the uh, young Heisman winners now in the NFL, uh, Kyler Murray, Joe Burrow, Lamar Jackson, you mentioned, Baker Mayfield, uh, Derek Henry, off to a fantastic start. Who do you think uh, has the best chance? What do you think about them?
4: Um, You know, up until Derrick Henry got hurt, I think everybody was thinking that, um, you know, the last two or three years that he's put together, if he can, you know, do that for another three, four, five years, he would certainly uh, have a shot. This injury is tough because, you know, that broken bone on top of the foot can can be problematic going forward. So it's going to be really interesting to see, how how he comes back and how he uh, is able to keep going um obviously what lamar is doing is sort of out of this world right you know i mean uh if he can certainly keep going you know he's going to be i think he has a, a great shot uh in years to come the crazy thing about this though you know the guys that we're talking about now we're 15 years away from those guys being you know even thought about as an inductee the, into the hall of fame so um you know kyler is is doing his thing so uh yeah you know i I think we have some great guys i love to see these guys representing and i always cheer for for them unless they play the raiders and i have a hard time but other than that i always try to cheer for these guys when i can
3: but now what a pleasure to welcome to the mic drop calvin watkins he's covered the cowboys and more for the Dallas Morning News for the past 10 years. Also did a notable stint at ESPN.com, all around. Really good guy. Follow him on Twitter at Calvin Watkins. He's got a lot of good stuff to say about the Cowboys and what's happening in the world too. Really good follow. Uh Calvin, welcome to the Mic Drop. It's great to see you. Appreciate it. Thanks for thinking of me. This started day. Okay. So this is a uh this is sort of a boxing. Special that we're doing this week mm. with the big with the big fight Saturday night at AT and T Stadium. Mm-hmm. You recently wrote, aside from your Cowboys coverage, you recently wrote uh, a really interesting piece that I recommend to our listeners uh, about Derek James, who we spoke to moments ago, and his relationship mm. with uh, Errol Spence Jr. Do you think? I mean, they are tight, and, and they mm-hmm. ha- clearly have have a special thing uh, going in the ring. What do you, you think? There's a better. Uh, Fighter trainer combo going right now. Uh, they're
5: pretty good. Um, you know they're undefeated as professionals. He's been with uh, uh, Spence since he was an amateur. Um, the funny thing is, Derek James has never won trainer of the year. You know, and Spence has never won fighter of the year. And when when I ask them about it, they they go, "Oh, it's politics or it's whatever." Um, but considering what Spence has fought through, you know, he had a car accident and thinking I. Think in in 2020. And then he had a detached retina last summer that, you know, got the Pacquiao fight derailed for him. And now he he keeps coming back. It's a testament to to Derek James and to Errol Spence. Um, You know, those two, I mean, when you think of trainers, you know, it's like a father son relationship or a brother, older brother, little brother relationship. And these trainers are the last line of defense you know, you know how you play golf, and I know you play a lot of golf. You know, that, that caddy, there's only so much he's going to tell you. You know, you're going to do what you want to do anyway. And he can't bail you out after you make a couple of bad shots. And in, in, in boxing, you know, this trainer can save you from some permanent damage. And I saw that last weekend. Uh, this kid Esteban Lubin was having a fight, and Kevin Cunningham stopped the fight. Lubin was winning this fight, and he had this big knot between his eyeballs you know I mean like a big knot his eye was swollen his cheek was like you would think he's getting another face he was just beating up but he was winning the fight but the trainer had to say I gotta get you out of here I gotta protect you and that's what a, a trainer does for a boxer and it's it's a very personal relationship that Derek has with spence.
2: So Calvin, uh, you know, I, this is uh, where I always ask for a prediction. So what are you, uh, uh-huh. who are you predicting on Saturday night's uh, main event?
5: Well, I think Spence will win by decision, even though he said the other day, he thinks he'll win by knockout over this uh, kid, uh Uga. So he's a pretty good fighter from, from Cuba, but uh, Spence uh, is, is a pretty big guy. He's a, he's a, he probably walks around 170 pounds, you know, going to Kroger or something, but. You know he's gonna be weighing 147 pounds in the ring, and he should he should win this fight in a pretty good decision against uh, you guys on Saturday.
2: Mm, okay, well, we will uh, see what happens this weekend, and then uh, report back. See if you're uh, batting a hundred here for us. <laughs> 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 so Calvin, the the Cowboys announced they will be the first NFL team to partner with a crypto co- uh, company, Blockchain.com. What do you make of uh, this new deal? Cowboys always keeping it uh, like to be first, but uh, you know, always keeping it one step ahead of everyone. So what do you make of this?
5: I'm not, I'm not surprised. This is what, this is what's so great about the Cowboys. They're ahead of the game. As you said, I remember a couple of years ago, we had this big press conference and they were partnering up with a casino. And I just thought it was this big deal, you know, And, and, and this is another big deal blockchain. So, yeah, the Cowboys are always first with these things. Um, Jerry, you can say whatever you want about Jerry. Jerry knows how to make money. Jerry knows how to get people and in fully invested into this franchise. This franchise doesn't want anything in about 25 years, but yet they got a marketing deal with casino. They got like one of the best stadiums in the NFL, maybe in sports. They have a great facility out there at the Star, and they got blockchain. So they do all these all these different things. They had WrestleMania, it was a couple of weeks ago down at the stadium. They had just, you know, Jerry reminds me of Don King. You know, he doesn't matter about publicity. He doesn't care about bad publicity. He doesn't He doesn't care because you're still talking about him. Here we are talking about this man, not because of what they do on the field, but because of blockchain. It's fantastic.